Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. Waterstone, let's play Know Your Presidents. <laughs> Question one. Concerning politicians, who said... The true statesman is one who has all the principles of the law carefully arranged in a vigorous mind and to whom all the particulars as well as the broad principles of international law are as familiar as his alphabet. And not only does he have the laws of his own country at his fingers' ends, but he should be intimately acquainted with all the more important legislative actions of every country on the globe. Tommy Wilson, 1847, student at Princeton. Very good. Question two. Concerning politicians, who said, he elevated plausibility to an art form, spinning the daydreams of his listeners into castles in their mind's eyes. He could prevaricate effortlessly and was just clever enough to stay ahead of his own contradictions. Well, that one's a little mixed. Andrew Jackson, 1804, talking about Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the United States, grandson of Jonathan Edwards, and the one who would kill Alexander Hamilton while a sitting vice president in an infamous duel. After watching this president's election campaign, Henry Adams wrote, Politics is the systematic organization of hatreds. Whose campaign? Van Buren, out of New York, the eighth president of the United States. Concerning politics, who said, the country is so totally given up to the spirit of party that not to, allow to, that not to follow blindfold the one party or the other is an inexpiable offense. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, some things never change. Politics, 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 politics. Jesus has just cleansed the temple with a whipcord running the merchants out of the Gentile courts, reminding Israel that they were off mission. They were preventing the Gentiles from having access to the worship of the God of all nations and flipping over tables. And the religious leaders come now to Jesus and say, by whose authority did you do that? Authority is a key word in the Gospel of Mark from the very opening chapter. Authority. To his followers... It was the thing that left the most lasting impression, his authority. To his opponents, it was the chief offense. This authority 
now leads to a series of six controversies that uh, compose chapters 11 and 12 of Mark. You can see them all up there, and uh, thank goodness for you, we are only going to look at one of those controversies, or we would be here for a long time to unpack all of those, especially that one, uh, the Sadducees to Jesus as a resurrection, whose wife will she be? Uh, Get in your groups and talk about that after the service. Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, but I, I wanted you to know that this controversies, they're very interesting to look at. You'll look at them in your small groups this week, or if you'd like to do some reading on each of them individually, stop by our information desk. There are small group curriculums that Janae and Jesse have written that do a great job in unpacking all of the controversies. What you see happening in these controversies is Jesus maneuvering, and there's no other way to say this really, maneuvering to get himself killed in order to save even his opponents. And what you see the Sanhedrin doing, the scribes, the priests, the elders is trying to get Jesus to say something. They set trap after trap, say something that would incite the crowds, cause a riot, get Jesus erected, and thus off the scene. I have chosen the controversy today of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax? For two reasons. One, I think of all of them, this is the vintage one. This is the one that shows the, the religious leaders trying to smoke Jesus out, say something that would get him killed, but at the same time, see Jesus making these bold claims in this passage saying that essentially all human government sits on my shoulder. You see Jesus trying to get them to really make a decision about him. If you repudiate me, act on it. Now, that is a quality of Jesus' ministry throughout. I want to remind you why you're here this morning. I don't know all of you, but I know one thing about you. You have to make up your mind about who Jesus is. He's either the Lord or as C.S. Lewis said, a lunatic on the level of a poached egg to say the things he said. There's no middle ground, my friends. None. There's none of this nonsense about him being an enlightened teacher or a spiritual guru or a man who has some good things to say that can improve our life. He never left those options open to us. He's the Lord. Or he's a lunatic saying these things. You have to choose. Second reason is not only is this vintage, I wanted to talk about politics with you this morning. Politics. We're going to have an interesting discussion. So first, we're going to look at the controversy centered around politics. And second, we're going to unpack the politics of Jesus. So first, the controversy then the politics of Jesus. In this text today, we find the closest thing that Jesus ever makes to a political statement. And we ask the question, what are the politics of Jesus? Let's read the controversy, shall we? It's going to be fun. Later, they said, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. 
They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin. He asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they, the Herodians and Pharisees, were amazed at him. The word of the Lord. Let's look at the controversy. It begins with a question, but we want to ask the who, the what, and the why about the question. Notice the who, Pharisees and Herodians. Briefly, the Herodians were pro-Herod, which means they were pro-Rome, which means they were in favor of accommodating to Roman culture. They were the cultural elites of Israel. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were anti-Herod, anti-Rome, do not accommodate with Roman culture, keep our culture pure Jewish, and they are the cultural conservatives of their day. Folks, this would be like the Tea Party Caucus and Nancy Pelosi's leadership team coming together to cross the aisle and work together at something. And what would that one thing be? Get rid of them. Get rid of Jesus. The what? Well, notice they start with some expertly placed political flattery. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity, blah, blah, blah. Then they say, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? What's this tax? This is a tax, a head tax required annually of anyone living in the Roman Empire who was not a Roman citizen. It was a denarius, a day's wage, a silver coin. This was a hated tax in the Jewish uh, nation. Now, we're told by Josephus that it was enacted in 6 AD, and when it was enacted, there was a riot, a revolt led by a man named Judas the Galilean. Now, Judas the Galilean is actually mentioned in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 when a Jewish preacher was preaching about the uh, movement of Jesus and he's saying, ah, the movement of Jesus is just going to like go all the way of all the other messianic movements, just like Judas the Galilean did. He appeared for a moment, blip on the screen, and then he was gone. Judas the Galilean revolted in, against the imperial tax. He rode in Jerusalem and he did three things. Now, this is interesting. First thing he did, he went into the temple and he cleansed it of all Gentiles. Second thing he did, he called on all Jews to not pay the imperial tax. And thirdly, as he was cleansing the temple, he was shouting, the Lord is king, not Caesar. The kingdom of God has come. Within days, Judas the Galilean was put under arrest and summarily executed. Now, 25 years later, this still in recent memory, Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. 
And what does he do? He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's cleansed the temple, though for different reasons. And now his religious leaders want to know, Jesus, what about the imperial tax? Do you know what this is called? A trap. They churned the cheese well. Because if Jesus says on the one hand, don't pay the tax, what's going to happen? There's going to be a revolt. He'll be put down and Rome was very good at crushing rebellion. He'd be gone. Or if he said, go ahead, pay the tax. All of his followers who've been with him this whole time and heard him say such amazing things about the kingdom of God, reminiscent of Old Testament prophecies who said, when the kingdom of God comes in, it will deal with real injustice and real suffering and real uh, poverty. But they would know that if Jesus says, just pay the tax, be a law-abiding citizen and have personal peace with God, that his ministry was smoke and mirrors. It was nothing. It would never leave lasting change. So do you get the trap? If he says pay, he loses the people. If he says don't pay, he loses his life. So what does Jesus do? What's the answer? Uh, 15, should we or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asks. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? So the first thing Jesus does is ask for a denarius. Now we actually know what a denarius is. They're in museums all over the world. Uh, this particular one, during Jesus' lifetime, the emperor was Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD. There's the likeness of Tiberius, his image, and the inscription reads, the son of God, Augustus. On the back is a picture of Tiberius's mama, <laughs> but the inscription reads Pontifus Maximus, which refers to Tiberius because it's in the masculine. So there's whose image? Tiberius, Caesar's. And what's the inscription? The son of God, the high priest. Jesus goes back, he asks for the coin, he looks at it, and then he makes this amazing statement. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. What's interesting here though, very subtle, but the key to the passage in some ways. When Jesus said, you know, the, the question was, should we pay the tax? Notice Jesus' answer. It's a different verb. He doesn't say pay Caesar's or pay the tax. He says give back to Caesar. It's a word that means give to someone what they deserve. Now, to me, that's delightfully ambiguous. Because what does a tyrant deserve? His money, for sure. In fact, in the day of Caesars, the Caesar actually owned the mint, and every coin was his. It belonged to him. It's just on loan to you. Give him back what he deserves, his money. But to a tyrant, doesn't he also deserve some resistance? Or what about a good tyrant? What does a good tyrant, or a good tyrant, what does a good leader deserve? His money, but perhaps obedience, honor, respect? Delightfully ambiguous. But here's the key. Jesus goes on to say, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and that's the key word in the sentence, right? The first view of limited government right here. Previously, all ancient governments felt that the leaders were divine. 
Even Israel struggled with it. Here, and to God, what is God? Jesus puts government in its place. He says, you give to Caesar what Caesar deserves. His money, what else he deserves? But you do not give to Caesar what only God deserves. Complete and total allegiance. A country gets limited allegiance. The king gets total allegiance. That's the controversy. They were amazed at him. I think mainly because he escaped their trap this time. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's dig this out and explore at least three observations that I would submit to you are the politics of Jesus. The first observation. Notice that in Jesus' answer to the Herodians and the Pharisees, that Jesus resists political simplicity. You know, they want a yes or no answer. Should we pay the imperial tax or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Yes or no? Either or. And Jesus says, no, politics is not either or, yes and no. It's not simple. Politics is nuanced and complex. Politics is seldom a yes or no answer. And Jesus won't give them what they want. Jesus, by implication, is teaching that no one political platform is large enough to hold him. Jesus is teaching that it is wrong for any of us to approach one another by saying, well, how could you vote for that person? Or how could you be part of that party? Because no political party is large enough to fully embrace the large agenda of the kingdom of God. Let me illustrate this. One of the first commands made to the human race is in Genesis 1 and 2. God makes it very clear that he gives to us dominion, rule and authority to take care of the earth. Waterstone. If anyone should be an environmentalist, it should be a Christian. Therefore, we could have voted in the last two or three elections for Ralph Nader or the Green Party with biblical support. But the African-American church comes into this and says, yeah, I hear you, environmental stewardship, but what about treating people, all people in the image of God? What about racial injustice? And the African-American church, which primarily you know, votes Democratic, could say, with biblical authority, we vote Democrat because we believe all people are made in the image of God. But then uh, another voice comes shouting in and said, all people, all people, what about people in the womb? What about the unborn? Who speaks for them? And with biblical support, someone could come in from the Republican side and say, I have biblical authority to vote this way. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is larger than any political party. The kingdom of God is much larger, the agenda, than any political platform. That should influence how we treat one another in our politics. 
That should stop the flow of these mean Facebook posts and email forwards. And I'll just speak for myself. Stop sending them to me. I've only got so many more days to advance God's kingdom. And you want me to read that crap? Don't be simplistic about our politics. Love, listen, learn, respect. Jesus is far too big. Uh, can I just, the Republican Party is not the Jesus Party. The Democratic Party is not the Jesus Party. Uh, do you get the point I'm trying to make here? Not only should we not be simplistic about our politics, we should not be simplistic about human government because I'm convinced one of the reasons we fly those mean-spirited Facebook and email forwards around is because we think, you know, government's going to save the world. This is so important. I want to remind you not to be simplistic about human government, that it is corrupt and fallen. And as Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, said in 1987, going from Reagan to Bush, there is nothing coming out of Washington that's going to save us. John Ortberg has this great thought experiment about the limited power of human government. Okay, deep breath. This is fun. Okay. <laughs> Imagine that we elected all the right people to all the right offices, president, congress, governors, right down to the school board, city council members, and dog catcher. Let's imagine that all these ideal office holders instituted all the right policies. Let's imagine that we got every piece of legislation from zoning laws to tax codes to immigration policies to crime bills exactly the way we know it ought to be. Would that usher in the kingdom of God? Would the hearts of the parents be turned toward their children? Would all marriages be models of faithful love? Would greed and pride be legislated out of existence? Would human beings now at last be able to master our impulses in the area of sexuality and anger and addictions and narcissism? Let's get a little more personal. Would you, Finally, become the woman or man you know you ought to be. In the words of theologian Michaeli Calkin, I don't think so. <laughs> because no human system has the ability to change the human heart. So we will not be simplistic about our politics or about human government and its abilities. That's implicit in this text when Jesus refuses to answer their questions with a simple yes or no. But then he goes on, you know, human government's fallen, it's corrupt. Should we just move to Montana and get off the grid? No. No offense to any Montana people in the room. My son lived there. It's a cool state. Um, Jesus says, secondly, second politics of Jesus, we should 
engage with government. Render unto Caesar what Caesar deserves. Now understand, Paul is writing this in the Roman Empire under the domain of Nero. So we have help from the New Testament. And let's go to the New Testament and get a little larger picture of what all is involved in this word engagement. And I'd suggest it's at least three things. How do we engage with government in the politics of Jesus? At least three ways. First, we engage with humility. Now, we've talked a little bit about this already. Let me just say one other thing about it, something I heard Tim Keller say once that has always stuck with me about politics. He says, here's how you know that Jesus is working in your politics. You're moving. Now, I don't think you assume you're, you know, Democrat one year, Republican one year, Libertarian one year. I don't think, you know, sometimes the shifts are drastic, but usually you're just moving and you understand that politics is seldom a 100% win or 100% loss. It's usually working for add-on, add, adding on a value. And so you're moving. That means at least two things. One is as we grow older, we realize that much of our political agenda was formed by the family we grew up in, by the traditions that we hold. And as we get older, we actually begin to explore them and I think in some cases outgrow them. Other areas, we begin, and this is especially true as a believer, we begin to understand that when we go to the voting box, we don't go to the voting box and pull the levers for what will make our lives comfortable. We go and we vote for God's agenda in the voting box. And that is often a very complex process, often involving multi-party approach to politics. We're always moving. So what I think happens is that those of us who are on the extreme edges, you know, only one party and you're all the way to the right or the left, all the way. Jesus comes in and says, wait a minute now. You know I am far too big to, to be in that party that you're endorsing with your whole heart. Far too big. So he starts to move you to the center. And if not in terms of philosophy and platform, at least in terms to the center, what's at the center of the Christian walk? Love. So at least in the way you treat people from the other side of the aisle, you move towards them in love because you know that the Bible says what? Love your enemies. So if you're on the extreme edges, you're moving towards the love center. If you're on the love center and there's some in the room, I've been there too. You just throw up your hands and say, I can't believe what's happening in Washington. I just can't believe it. I'm done. I quit. We like to be there in the comfortable center. Not my problem. Well, the gospel and the king comes in and he wants to push you to the outer edges of party and say, wait a minute, church, partnership with government, the holy quartet, the God's interested in, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, those are not only political issues, those are church issues. And when the kingdom comes down in your heart, you begin to understand, I can't just sit around and complain I got to get busy and get involved. So if you're in the comfortable soft center, the gospel energizes you to action. If you're in the extreme edges, the gospel energizes you to love. How do you know Jesus is affecting your politics? You're moving. You're moving. Secondly, I think the other way we engage is not only by being humble, but secondly, by being obedient. 
Let's go to Paul. Let's listen to him. Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. <laughs> Timely, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants. It's an act of worship when you sign your tax forms. Oh, I thought I'd get an amen on that. Come on now. Are you with me? Who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And I remind you again that this is Paul writing under the administration of Nero, under the Roman Empire, who in 70 AD, as we'll hear next week, would come in and flatten the city and siege Jerusalem and kill hundreds of thousands of Jews. And Josephus would say they ran out of crosses in doing it. This is the same government, Rome, that tried to stomp the Christian movement out by feeding Christians to the lions on the Colosseum floor. Now, let's be clear. Rome was not Nazism. There were some good things about Rome and their system of government, and they did good things, and they were in many ways a model for what good civil government should look like. But nevertheless, they were Rome. Those of us here who are just fed up with American politicians, let me just say this. Rome was worse. Honor, respect, submit, and pay your taxes. We obey because God has instituted government. We're not responsible or culpable for how the government spends our money, but we pay our taxes. Third, prayer. This one's quick. Don't worry. 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Just two statements. One, some of you really need to hear this. It is harder to hate someone when you're praying for them. Two, do you really believe that history belongs to the intercessors, not the politicians? Jesus says, render unto Caesar, engage with human government, with humility, obedience, and prayer. And... Render unto God what is God. When Jesus calls for the coin and he pulls out this image thing, it's the same word used in Genesis 1 when it says that all human beings are made in the image of God. So we give to Caesar what Caesar deserves some coin, some resistance. But we give to God what he deserves. And what does God deserve? Because we are in his image. He deserves complete and utter and total and absolute allegiance from us. 
And that is why, again, when we go into the voting booth, we do not vote our agenda. We vote his agenda because we owe limited allegiance to our government and absolute allegiance to our king. And that may mean that there come occasions, and we have been blessed in our land that it's only been occasions. There may be more coming, but there are those occasions when the government says to do this, and we say no, because our king tells us this. And we see that orange thread all the way through Scripture. Little Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, Shipra and Puah. The Pharaoh says, kill the Jewish babies. They're growing too fast. And Shipra and Puah, with amazing courage, say, no, we, to themselves, we're not going to kill babies. And they make up these great lies about the Hebrew wives. They have such short labor. We can't get there in time. And civil disobedience saves a nation. And then we come to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to kneel for the national anthem. And they say, we will not kneel. We will stand because we do not give total allegiance to any earthly ruler. We give our allegiance to the Lord God. And they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And turns out they're fireproof. And then we come in to the New Testament. And the apostles are told by the Jewish and Roman authorities, stop talking about Jesus, stop speaking about him in public. And they say, should we obey men or should we obey God? We choose to obey God, do what you will. And there's an orange thread of complete and total allegiance to God that runs throughout the scripture. So, Jesus' view of politics, don't be simplistic about politics or human government. Instead, engage government with humility, obedience, and prayer. But above all, give total and absolute allegiance at all costs to the one true King, Jesus. Now, how do we do it? Where's that heart come from? It's in the text. The great irony of the text is you have two rulers on the stage you have Tiberius Caesar, who's claiming to be the son of God and the high priest. You have Jesus Christ, who's claiming to be the son of God and the high priest. One has all the quarters in the world, literally. The other does not have a quarter to his name. Who is this Jesus? Who is this one that gives up everything he has and comes, lays down his life for us? Who is he? He's the one who would say, friend, the climax of my power is not by winning an election. The climax of my power is when I am executed. And why was I executed? I was executed for you so that I could give you the wealth of heaven acceptance and a future kingdom that if you just glimpsed it now you would come undone and I became anonymous on the cross so that I could give you a name child of God do you want that king will you follow that king 
Billy Graham used to end every crusade with these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Will you come? Jesus says to you this morning, he brought you here, follow me. Even into politics, follow me. If you've made that decision to follow Jesus, then it's time that we stand and declare our absolute allegiance to the king. Billy found this great song, let us stand. Give us clean hands, give us pure heart. Let us not lift our soul to another. Let us be the generation that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. Let's proclaim it. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.